0: Nahum chapter 3 is uh, where i are going to direct your attention. I'm going to read from Nahum 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, cavalry flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead Bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face, I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth, I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see will flee from you, you will flee from you and say, "Nineveh is in ruins, who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you?" Are you better than Thebes? Situated on the Nile with water around her. The river was her defense. The water's her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles and all her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk you will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops, they're weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. <laughs> Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defense, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the work, brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. Multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts. They settle on the walls on a cold day. But when the sun appears... They fly away. No one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? This morning, I want to talk to you, those of you, especially in the room who are a little conflicted about Nahum. On the one hand, we read this book and Nahum is talking about a particularly brutal, vicious, cruel people. And you see the justice in what this book says. For those of you who haven't been with us for the last few weeks, we've been reading this book and pretty much all three chapters are just like what we read full of judgment and, and wrath. Uh, Nahum's talking about the city of Nineveh, and Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and uh, the Assyrian Empire was the first great world empire, and they were brutal and vicious in their conquest. And that's what he's uh, speaking about to the oppressed people, saying, God sees the oppression that you have experienced. And, and he's going to do something about it. I, I imagine that uh, Nahum this book must match the impulse sometimes that's felt, I would imagine, in the State Department in Washington, D.C. You know, the State Department is that uh, portion of the executive branch that is responsible for foreign policy, and you're the undersecretary of this or the undersecretary of that, and you're sitting in your office and you get a report um, about a dictator somewhere in the world who has gassed his own people, or uh, uh, some a uh, leader somewhere who is intentionally starving a couple million of his citizens in his country. And you think to yourself, somebody has to do something about that. Something has to be done about this. And then because you're in the State Department, there goes endless debates what can the United States do? What should the United States do? What must the United States do? But somebody, somebody has got to do something about this dictator, about this leader. And that's, that's Nahum. And, and you can see the, the justice here. On the other hand, though, is there anybody in the room who, any part of you that feels, we've read this three weeks in a row, Feels that this is just a bit uh, much. Is there no compassion for the people of Nineveh? This is a jarring book. It's it's sobering. Uh, Thoughts like this have run through my mind. Is there any is there any mercy to be had for these people? And I I can see it sometimes on your faces in the last couple weeks as we've read this. Some of you are woo. This is jarring. Remember Jonah? I, I've suggested to you that you should compare Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah, about 150 years before Nineveh, before Nahum went to Nineveh and he preached to the people, and they repented, and God spared them. And why didn't he send, why didn't God send Nahum to Nineveh again so that they could get a second chance, maybe, and have another chance to repent? Why, why didn't he do that? Or um oh. Did did it stick out to you when we read verse 5? God compares Nineveh to a woman, and look what he says, about prostitute. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 5, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. There's some people who complained about the Apostle Paul, that the Apostle Paul hated women, that, that Paul was some sort of misogynist. They complained about Paul that way because Nahum is so hard to find in the Bible. How how do you read verse 5 in the Me Too era with what God says He's going to do to Nineveh? Or verse 10... Do you notice that? He's, verse 10, we'll, we'll come back to this too, is talking about the, the capture of the city of Thebes. And then in the, the second line of verse 10, her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. And then verse 11, you too. This is going to happen to you too, Nineveh. And God is overseeing it. God is overseeing and ordaining as part of his justice towards Nineveh, the smashing of children of infants into the sidewalk. Whew. Is anybody troubled about worshiping God, who over, the God who oversees the smashing of children into the sidewalk? Every Bible teacher who asks questions like that says to himself in the inside, why did you point that out? could have just skimmed over that, and people might not have noticed. I want to talk to you this morning about why you might feel conflicted about Nahum. I've been thinking about this a little bit. I, I have a couple of ideas uh, about why you might feel conflicted. One of them is bad, and if when we get to it, you recognize it in yourself, you need to learn to toss it overboard and get rid of it, <laughs> speaking of Jonah. Jonah. Another reason why you might feel conflicted about Nahum, though, that I, uh, that I think is, is, uh, might ring true with you, it, it is actually a credit to you. You'll see that when we get there. I think that thinking about why we might be conflicted about Nahum will help us um, as we try to navigate our public presence. We followers of Jesus sometimes struggle to uphold the very high standards of the Bible. The Bible has very high standards for how we live. None of us meet those standards, but this is what we aspire to. This is how we aim to live, and this is what we recognize as the way of wisdom and goodness, these very high standards. Sometimes we followers of Jesus struggle to uphold them and uh, speak about them and proclaim them without being uh, self-righteous or mean or um, a jerk about it. If we think about why we, might, uh, why we might be conflicted about Nahum, it will help us, I think, uh, with, uh, keep our standards without compromising, but also without losing our compassion. Here's what I want to do. Well, two, two sections that we'll think about. First, we're going to talk about why you should not feel conflicted about Nahum. And then I want to share with you why you might feel conflicted about Nahum. So here's why you should not feel conflicted about Nahum. Uh, And we're going to walk through chapter three. And uh, chapter three is another argument in this book, another poem about why Nineveh deserves what is going to happen to them, why they're guilty, why this is justice for them, and three reasons. Number one, Nineveh was violent. Nineveh was violent. Now stop me if you've heard this before. Over and over again, we've heard this before. Remember, verse 1 of chapter 3, you city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Then we go on to verses 2 and 3. There's debate about whether or not verses 2 and 3 are about the invasion that's going to come against Nineveh, or is this a description of what the Ninevites did when they attacked people? Um, So if it's about the attackers of them, then we get more of what we saw last week in chapter 2. If it's about the Nineveh attack, which I think is right... Here's an illustration of their, their never without victims. Here's the city of blood and it's invading. And what do they do? Well, you're supposed to hear and see what happens in verses 2 and 3. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, these short, punchy sentences. You're supposed to hear it and see it. Cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears. And what happens? Um, they leave behind Bodies. It's interesting, verse 2 begins very loud with uh, the crack of whips and the clatter of wheels and galloping horses, loud, verse 2, and verse 3 ends with the silence of death. The Ninevites come through, they're loud, and what do they leave? Piles of bodies without Number. Nineveh was violent. Now, verse 1 introduces something to us that we haven't uh, thought about very much, uh, lies. It also says, woe to the city of blood full of lies. Nineveh was violent, but Nineveh was also deceptive and manipulative and treacherous. Actually, this leads us to number two. Why does Nineveh deserve this? Because number two, Nineveh was treacherous. Nineveh was treacherous. And starting in verse 4, we learn, again, they were not just violent, they were manipulative, they were deceptive. The nations that they did not invade and kill, uh, the ones that they left, they lied to, they seduced. That's um, verse 4, why are you invading? Because of the wanted, there's a reason, purpose there. Why did you do what you did? Because of the wanton lust, now we have two images, of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries. Now, we have to think about this. On the one hand, Nahum is naming two specific practices that Nineveh was well known for. The main god that was worshipped in Nineveh of the Assyrians was the god Ishtar, and Ishtar uh, exalted in cult prostitution, and Nineveh as a city was just full of prostitution. It was also full of, uh, well, witchcraft and sorceries. We found the library at Nineveh. It's exceedingly well preserved. And in the library of Nineveh, there are collections of spells and enchantments and magical instructions. All these efforts on the part of the people to control their fate or to control the gods through their incantations. So Nineveh was just a fountain of prostitution and sorcery. So Nahum is speaking about them literally But he also, I think his main point here is he's using them, uh, these images metaphorically rather than literally, because this is the stance of Nineveh as a city toward other nations. They're not just violent, they're manipulative schemers. I have to think about this for a minute here. What prostitutes and Nineveh have in common, they both make promises that they cannot keep. Follow me here for a minute. So, we believe that the gift of sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. So, where God designed it to thrive, where it's to find its most fulfillment and most satisfaction in this covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Now, we live in a broken world. And there are many reasons why, living in this broken world, that uh, sexual intimacy does not reach its highest fulfillment and satisfaction. Um, Many marriages at various points in time struggle with this. The solution to the struggle, though, is not to find fulfillment or satisfaction outside of marriage in some sort of illegitimate form of uh, sexual intimacy. And here's what a prostitute offers. What a prostitute offers is sexual intimacy without the covenant bond that seals and protects and provides for it. And a prostitute always promises more. Prostitution promises more than it can deliver. And it costs more than it is advertised to cost. Nineveh has promised its neighbors all kinds of things, all kinds of benefits, all kinds of goods, and it can't deliver on them. It has seductive power, uh, the seductive power of a prostitute and the illusions of sorcery to try to draw other nations into allegiance to Nineveh, and Nineveh cannot deliver what it is promising. We should also remember that... um, Adultery and, and prostitution are images often used in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel, their defection from God. They're, they're not being loyal to God, they're committing adultery. And, and there's the implication, I think, in this passage, is that Nineveh as a city is so big that it is promising things that only God can deliver. I think that's why, in part, in verse 5, God so strongly says to them again, I am against you. The humiliation that happens in verse 5 when it says, I'll lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness. It's, it's, it's speaking in terms of a woman. This is not about a literal woman, but the nation. And God is saying, You're a sham, Nineveh, and I'm going to expose you and I'm going to show the world that you can't deliver on all the promises that you have made. You are an illusion. God's going to reveal the true character of this city that is so big and powerful and makes so many promises that it cannot possibly keep. This exposure... Some of you will recognize here in the Bible something that God does, that God speaks to often, that God is the one who knows and who exposes who we truly are. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. It's going to appear on the screen here. Hebrews 4, 13 says, "...nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight." Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows. He knows. He knows the things about you that no one else knows. Or look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you that everyone will have to give an account, the Lord Jesus says, on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. Or Luke eight seventeen, Jesus said, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully, it says, how you listen. Or oh, it doesn't say that. I don't have it up there. Well, I'll read it to you. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. This exposure, God knows, and it will be unveiled. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, we recognize that our exposure took place on the cross. All the things that are true of us, all the bad things that are true of us, are made manifest on the cross of the Lord Jesus. That is where our sins are laid bare and they're set upon him. Alfred Poyer wrote an article several years ago called The Cross and Criticism. It was, a, it was an article that tried to help followers of Jesus. How do you respond when someone criticizes you? Don't raise your hand. Is there anybody in the room who takes criticism really, really well, who loves it even when it's Constructive? Well, um, Poyer said, the thing about criticism is, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is nothing that anybody can say to you that is uh, uh, not worse than what the cross has already said about us. Someone will come to you and they say, you did this, you thought that, you were acting for this reason, and you may say to them, that's true, you're right, or you may say, That's not quite right, but trust me, the truth is far worse than you're accusing me of at this point in time. Do you want to know how bad, how bad I am? Look at the cross of Christ. There is my sin on display. So bad am I that this is what it took for me to be reconciled to God. Here is all of my sin on display, and it's been laid on Jesus. There is nothing that anybody can ever say to you that is worse than what the cross of Christ already says about you. Your sin laid on Jesus. Our sins are laid bare. There also, uh, our, this exposure also takes place, not with the intent of humiliation, but the pl- intent of healing, uh, through confession, through confession. Uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's my, I, I am exposed here in this confession, or even James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. I read that verse and I think to myself, what changes do I need to make in my life to make that the norm rather than the exception? What would need to be true of a congregation where confession of our sins, not for the purpose of shame, but for the purpose of healing and help, would be the norm and not the exception. Here's this exposure in Nineveh and exposure because God knows. Now, verse 7, before we move on, has this word that might be helpful for those of you who are conflicted about Nahum. Look what it says. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh's in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? The people who knew Nineveh and saw Nineveh up close when Nineveh fell, they didn't mourn. They weren't conflicted at all. What do they know about Nineveh that you don't know about Nineveh, if you're conflicted about Nineveh? Huh. Well, Nineveh is, was violent. Nineveh was treacherous. Third, Nineveh was arrogant. Why did they deserve this terrible judgment? Because of their arrogance. Verses 8 through 11 describe the attack on the ancient city of Thebes. Thebes was the capital of the Egyptian empire in the southern part of Egypt, and it, everybody thought that the city of Thebes was impregnable until the Assyrians themselves, the Ninevites, overcame, uh, attacked the city and defeated it in 663 BC. We have historical records about that, and it was the Assyrians who destroyed the city of Thebes. And what Nahum is doing is he's saying to Nineveh, you think you're impregnable too. Well, <laughs> look at Thebes. You're the ones who took it down. Uh, they have the same sort of defenses that you have, Nineveh. They're surrounded by a river. They have strong walls. They even have friends. Assyria had no friends. Assyria just had um, lackeys. But, but the Thebes had friends. Cush and Egypt, Put and Libya. They were her allies. You don't have friends, Nineveh. You think you're unconquerable? <laughs> You know what every world power has in common? Uh, Every world power thinks that it is invincible. That's what every world power that has ever been a world power thinks about itself, that it's invincible. That's what they all have in common. They're arrogant, arrogant and more vulnerable than they thought. We can just move through this quickly. Verse 12, you're like ripe figs. a fig tree, when it's ripe, if, if all you need to do is go up and shake it and, and the figs fall off, you uh, go like this and uh, shake the tree and the figs will fall in your mouth. You know little children do that for fun, I would imagine, where you have fig trees and uh, they fall. That's fig newtons. It's... Anyway, so uh, um, uh, you, you're, you're vulnerable like that. Um, like fig trees. Uh, verse 13, your troops are not reliable like you think. Verse 14, you can do all the defense work you think that, that will help you, that will protect you. That won't help. That, the fire, verse 15, is going to consume you there. You can have a lot of troops. You can multiply like grasshoppers and multiply like locusts. That won't help you. You can have a lot of wealth going in and out of your city because of the merchants. That's verse 16. That's not going to help you. Verse seventeen: Your soldiers are not going to help you. They're like locusts that, when the sun comes out, run. Your soldiers are going to run. And then verse eighteen: Your your royal officials, your shepherds, your nobles—they're—they're they're not going to protect you either. You think you think you're so strong, and everything that you're putting confidence in is just smoke. It's just a—it's—it's a, it's a, a, a relying on tissue paper. It's—it's it's just you're not as strong as you think you are. You shouldn't feel conflicted or unsettled about Nineveh. Remember, Nahum was written to comfort the oppressed. And Nahum's message, main message is this good news. God's going to end the cruelty of those whose cruelty seems endless. It happens every couple of years, right? There's a news story, you turn on the local news and there'll be some reporter standing outside a courtroom and they're there with the story. And the story goes something like this. Today in this courtroom, uh, th- there, there was a, a, a man who was on trial because he committed a horrific crime. He uh, kidnapped a teenage girl and he abused her horribly and um, he, he was arrested. He's on trial. And the news report will be today, while that criminal, that that accused criminal, was uh, walking through the halls, the father of that teenage daughter who he attacked um, jumped him in the halls and beat him in the halls. That story comes out. And there's, there were no cameras to capture the event, but they show the after effects. They show the accused criminal with a bloody nose and a black eye and, and kind of dazed and confused, and they show the father of the girl that girl, that man attacked, being arrested because he assaulted somebody in a courthouse. Now, when you see those news stories, what sort of things goes through your mind? What do you think? It, isn't there part of you that thinks to yourself, Good. Good. If I was a father, I'd do the same thing. It's exactly what he deserves for what he did. Good. No, you shouldn't do that. Okay? Courthouse is there, um, instituted by God, justice to enforce uh, justice and to arrest criminals, and there should be a trial. That, that you shouldn't go attack. But don't isn't there, don't you have an impulse in your mind, in your heart a little bit that sees that story and thinks, good? Nineveh, Nineveh is that brutal attacker. And Nahum is announcing that God is on the move. Father says, You touch my daughter, I'll touch you. God says. Nineveh, you touch my people, I will touch you. Justice. And yet, and yet, is there anyone troubled by all this in this book, these three chapters over and over again? Here, let me talk to you about why you might feel conflicted about Nineveh, why you might feel conflicted about Nineveh. And um, here's two reasons. The first one here, you wish that God were not so exacting. You wish God were not quite so strict, quite so exacting. I don't know if there's anyone who sees themselves in the pages of Nahum at all. Uh, It describes all the terrible things that Nineveh did, but maybe... Not to the same extent, and not necessarily in the same ways, but do you find yourself here at all having maybe thought or maybe even done something that is, is hinted at in these pages? Is there part of you that would prefer to live in a world where that, where, with a God who's just not quite so strict and who cuts people some more slack and gives people another chance and isn't quite this Just? Some of you use mouse traps in your house. We use mouse traps every now and then if we see the evidence and the need for a mouse trap. And uh, we were sitting one day. There was a mouse trap set in our uh, pantry cupboard, and uh, we were Kathy and I were sitting in the living room. And it was many years ago. The house was quiet. We didn't have children, so the house was quiet. And we were sitting in the living room, and the kitchen was dark, and and um, we we were dark enough that we were sitting there that we heard the snap of the trap caught a mouse. Kathy looked at me, was very excited. I'm in charge in our house of the corpse disposal unit. And I looked at her and I said, I don't move warm bodies. She wants that mouse to to resume, uh, uh, assume room temperature before I touch it. That's, I don't want to move a warm body. So I waited a little bit until for that mouse. It was dead. Some of you, some of you take delight in this. You say cruel things like, I'm going to leave the mouse there for as long as possible to scare all the other mice away, <laughs> right? Let the other mice see what happens. You crawl, crawl through my pantry. Nahum, snap. Nahum is the book, snapped on the neck of the Ninevites and the rest of us rodents. Ooh. Yikes. I wish God weren't quite so exacting, quite so just. I had a professor in uh, one of my first classes I took in seminary. His name was Harold Honer, and Harold Honer was a. Um, 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 brilliant man. He had two earned doctorates. He was a master of the Greek language. Uh, And um, the first day of class, we walked in, we had two textbooks for the class, and one of them was an 1,100-page book called Introduction to the New Testament. Which is ironic because the New Testament itself is about fifty pages, and the introduction was eleven hundred pages. I have questions about that. But on the first day of class, Harold Honer passed out a seven-page, double-spaced, single, single uh, double-sided, single-spaced corrections to the eleven hundred-page textbook. And it wasn't corrections about the views of the textbook, it was correction about the grammar and spelling and punctuation and references to the textbook. So one of them would be like this, it would read like this. On page 87, footnote 3, the author refers to this encyclopedia, page 66. He is actually referring to page 68 of that encyclopedia, seven pages single space double-sided of those corrections that kind of sets the tone for the class right harold honer was exacting he was specific he was demanding his nickname on campus was herod honer he thought that was funny i'm sure because he had a marvelous sense of humor First test I took, there were two tests in that class, first one the midterm. You don't know, what, what what's he going to expect us to know on this test? You never know with a new teacher, what is he going to expect us to know? I found out the hard way, everything, everything expects you to know everything. Do you ever have a teacher like that? Some of you are teachers like that and nobody likes you. Isn't there a part of you that wishes that God could just cut you some slack? That God would not be uh, that, that God would not be quite so exacting, but that God would not be worthy of your worship. He would not be great. He would not be holy. He would not be righteous. He would not be good. He would not even be loving. If God is indifferent to the wicked ways in which we human beings treat one another, he does not love us. If he doesn't oppose bloodshed in Nineveh, if he doesn't oppose violence and cruelty and treachery in Lancaster County, he's not a good God. You don't want to be ruled, but you don't want to live in a world ruled by a sloppy, lazy, indifferent God, even when you know that condemns you too. I have bad news for you. If you're so conflicted that you cannot see any glory in the justice of God in Nahum, there's going to come a day when God's wrath is going to be evident and visible for all to see. And there will be no conflicts over what he does in that day to come. Now, here's a better reason, a better reason why you might feel conflicted about Nahum. You might feel conflicted about Nahum because you've experienced grace. I want to share with you three things that you have that the people of Nineveh did not have. What do you have that Nineveh did not have? Three things. One, a comforter. You have a comforter and the Ninevites do not. Remember verse 7? What does it say at the end? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? The word comfort, of course, Nahum's name means comfort. This is clearly a play on his on words here. Where can I find anybody to Nahum you? Where can I find anybody to comfort You. There's no comfort for the Ninevites, nobody to to offer them a cool glass of water, no one to put an arm or a blanket around them and say, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, no one to encourage them, no one to help them at all. They have no comforter. And what do we have? We have the Lord Jesus who says to us in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do, Do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. What do we have? We have what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. He says, I think this will show up on the screen here in a minute. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. What did Nineveh have? Justice, judgment, wrath. We have a comforter, abounding comfort. What else do you have that the Ninevites did not have? You have a shepherd. Verse 18 makes a reference to the shepherds of Assyria, and in the Bible, a shepherd is an image of a king or of a leader of some kind. It's one of the most common images in the Bible for a leader is a a shepherd, and one of the saddest things that can happen in the Bible is that there would be sheep that do not have a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd is is a terrible thing in the Bible. In Numbers chapter 27, when Moses is about to die, he prays to God that God would send them a shepherd, the people, a shepherd to lead lead them, who will, he says, go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Because that's terrible. Or remember what what was said about Jesus in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, notice here in Nahum chapter 3, verse 18, at the second half, it says, Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. People, the Ninevites, they're scattered, and there's no shepherd. There's no shepherd to go and get them and bring them home. But what do we have? We have Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays his life down for his sheep, who said, when he was talking about his shepherding work, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, which is exactly what happened in Nineveh. But I have come, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. There's no shepherds in Nineveh. What else do you have that the Ninevites do not? A third thing, you have a God who is for you. A God who is for you. Two times in the book of Nahum, they're important verses, 2.13 and 3.5. What does God say to the Ninevites? I am against you. I am against you. Think about how that contrasts contrasts with what Paul wrote in Romans 8.31. He said, what then shall we say in response to these things? Romans 8, 31 begins this way. What shall we say in response to these things? Well, what are the these things? There's a lot in chapter 8. Uh, there's a lot of suffering. We're experiencing suffering in this world, but we have the promises of God's presence and his glory. What do we say in response to that? The suffering and the glory. What do we say in response to that? Well, what do we say? Is, what we say is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is against you, it doesn't matter who is for you. Your goose is cooked. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. If God is for us, who who can be against us? And if you're a follower of Jesus, God is for you. He's on your side. He's got your back. He's He's working in your life. He's for you. And then the chief evidence, of course, is in verse 32. How do we know God is for us? Because he did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we He not also along with him graciously give us all things? What do we have that Nineveh did not? Grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. I understand why you might feel conflicted about Nineveh because they deserve deserve God's judgment and that's exactly what they received. You also received God's judgment, but what have you received? Grace upon grace upon grace. And our calling is to keep these things in tension, these two things in tension. Our high standards, the certainty of the Bible, the high standards of the Bible gives us our certainty that um, God's judgments are right and we deserve judgment from God, but hold that intention with this marvel, the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus. Holding those intentions will keep you from being proud and self-righteous. It will keep you from compromising without losing your compassion. It will create an environment where it's normal for people to confess their sins to one another. Nineveh received exactly what they deserved. It's exactly what we deserve too. But for followers of Jesus, against all expectation, there is grace upon grace. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. We have in him a comforter. We have a shepherd. We have in him a God who is for us. Lord, help us as we read Nahum and we see the Ninevites getting all that they deserved. Help us, Lord, use this book, we pray, to remind us of all the benefits and all the blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus. How great is your grace toward us. How grateful we are to you for your kindness, that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you who are rich in mercy sent your Son to be our Savior. Fill us with joy in that, even as we are sobered by this um, book, this uh, prophecy in your word. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.